my father had us one Saturday and he took us to Central Park to the conservatory water, which is where, you know, they have the iconic sort of um, photograph of the, the young boy carrying the large sailing ship. And it's where you can go even today and, and rent little motorized boats to sail on this very formal pond. And he took us there and he sat us down and he said, well, what do you think? You know, we liked it. And he said, well, you know, this didn't happen by accident. Somebody made this. And the idea that, you know, to an eight-year-old that you could make nature, that to me was absolutely fascinating. This is Inside the Apple Studio, the podcast that details the intersection of architecture and Apple and explores how architects and other design professionals use Apple products in the practice of architecture. With your host, architect Neil Pan. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Monograph is the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. Learn how Monograph can help you be more productive at monograph.com. Inside the Apple Studio is also supported by ArcIT. ArcIT is an IT provider that specializes in serving Mac and PC-based architecture and design firms. For a free consultation, go to getarcit.com. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio. I'm pleased to have someone who started and owns a mission-driven social justice practice that is known for innovative landscape preservation, development, and management. She is passionate about the protection and restoration of heritage trees and living landmarks and is a nationally recognized figure in the preservation of cultural heritage sites. I'm honored to have Elizabeth Kennedy to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for asking me, Neil. I'm really psyched to be here. Great. Well, I appreciate it. Well, let's jump right in. And I want to start off with asking, what inspired you to become a creative professional and a landscape architect? Well, that's that's really sort of easy. Um, I happen to be the daughter and the niece of architects. So this, this in a way, has been the family business. Um, but also, uh, uh, my parents married, met and married while my dad was an architecture student. And so um, things that might have been in an office were actually in our home. Uh, we had to be told not to use the magic markers, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, my parents uh, really encouraged uh, art, the arts in the home. Um, it was very important. There was always music on Saturdays. Uh, we drew on every available piece of paper, my brother and I. And um, I think in large part, you know, as I get older, I realize that that must have been, you know, their sort of um, strategy for managing us because we were, we were pretty much engrossed in what we were doing. <laughs> instead of but sitting in front of the TV, it was sitting of, in front of a piece of, of paper and drawing. And, you know, we, 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 would, we would do this. And, um, and, and, you know, my father was very excited to share, um, to share what he was learning with, with us. Uh, you know, he, uh, both my parents worked during the day and then my dad went to school at night. So 
um, we, we really, our family time was really weekends. And, um, and I remember, it, you know, this year has been a lot of talking about how you got started. And my father had us one Saturday and he took us to Central Park to the conservative, conservatory water, which is where, you know, they have the iconic sort of um, photograph of the, the young boy carrying the large sailing ship. And it's where you can go even today and, and rent little motorized um, uh, boats to sail on this, on this um, very formal um, uh, pond. And he took us there and he sat us down and he said, well, what do you think? You know, we liked it. And he said, well, you know, this didn't happen by accident. Somebody made this. And the idea that, you know, to an eight-year-old that you could make nature, um, that to me was absolutely fascinating um, to the extent that I would dig up the backyard. And we had a failed backyard. <laughs> the entire backyard was, was shaded by a large maple. And so, you know, my mother was like, I'm not doing this. So, um, it, you know, my father had projects and stuff was in the garage and they were out during the week. So you could come home and decide that you were going to dig, make a river and, you know, um, you know, dig a small trench and fill it with water and then, you know, float a, a popsicle stick down and all of these things. And, you know, that started very early. So um, that sort of influence was always there. Uh, I always drew, I always painted um, my parents Invent, you know, I, I didn't do music classes. I did art classes. Um, and when my family moved to Jamaica, uh, things changed. Uh, my, when my father finished and, um, and actually went, the family moved to Jamaica and he joined my uncle's architecture firm. Uh, my uncle, they, they weren't related. They were in-laws. Okay. But they, they, um, my father joined that firm. And... Um, the life that we had in New York was was uh, uh, was sort of put aside. But if you go to school in the British education system, particularly at that time, which was the late sixties, early seventies, you kind of have to choose your life early. You know, at, at fourteen, they ask you, "What do you want to do?" and and um, I said, I had just read an article on one of my father's architectural records, and I was coming through it. And it was this thing called, you know, they had a landscape architect on the project. And I thought, oh, this really captures everything that I was interested in, because I've been interested in rocks as a kid and, you know, marine biology, and I thought I would be a farmer and I love to draw. So here was this profession. And um, I have to say that, like, my high school headmistress, very, you know, it was like Harry, Harry Potter on steroids. Like, you know, um, she went out of her way to make sure that I had the, you know, the preparatory classes in high school to be able to pursue this pr profession, you know, since I was 14. So I was one of the few girls, I went to an all-girls school, and um, who did both arts and sciences. Interesting. And um, they had to configure um, the schedule around me being able to move between these, these two um, areas of discipline. Because in, in the British system, if you say you want to study physics, that's all you study. 
you don't you don't do you know other electives you do physics right okay and so you know we were sort of um you know uh oriented or geared towards that system but i was coming back to the united states i was an american citizen first generation immigrant and uh you know the education system here was was always broader yeah so um i I was, but, but I had, I had chemistry and I, and I had biology and I had art and I had, I had to do a language. So I had a lot of French, um, you know, there were all of these things that we had to do, but, uh, there was, there was a special effort made for me to be able to do this. And I'm always grateful. Interestingly, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't target an, a landscape architecture program as an undergrad. Uh, I had research and I knew that uh, you could, uh, you know, you could go to a master's program, you could attend a master's program and do the three years, which in the seventies was kind of revolutionary. I'm, I'm dating myself, but I don't That's care. Okay. Um, um, and so I wanted to take my undergraduate op- at, you know, studies as an opportunity to just do something I would never do otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I ended up at, at Cornell and uh, uh, was in the College of Human Ecology. And I, did, I was in the Department of, of Design and Environmental Analysis. And I did the environment. I focused on the environmental analysis part with the concentration in housing, you know, the Department of Public Policy. And it had a different name at that time, but I, I had a concentration in housing. And you know, that sort of gave me a foundation to look at things very broadly and very differently. I certainly had a greater exposure to a wider range of things at Cornell than I would have definitely if I'd stayed within a British system. And uh, I stayed at Cornell to do graduate studies in landscape architecture. So, Why Cornell? Well, <laughs> um, first of all, at that time, uh, there was a lot more scholarship money and Cornell was very generous. Um, uh, I did my part. I kept my grades up, but (laughs) (laughs) they were very generous. Um, I had applied to four schools Mm -hmm. at the time. I, I, Cornell, University of Pennsylvania, um, Berkeley and Harvard and uh, Penn, Cornell, um, and Berkeley accepted me right out and, and were generous. Mm-hmm. And, and Harvard was like, well, let's wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> They're lost. And, well, you know, they, they actually wrote me back and said, you're in. And, but I'd, I'd already, I was young and, and, and I'd already committed to Cornell at that time. Yeah. Uh, because uh, first of all, I, I thought I was going to go back to Jamaica to live and practice. And at that time, you could own, you know, foreign exchange was 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 very highly regulated, and you could only export or take fifty U.S. dollars out of the country per year. And I just thought I I could never saddle myself with any sort of debt or anything else like that that would that would. Um, prevent me from being able to make these obligations one way or the other. And so, um, you know, financial support was very critical and, and Cornell was the most generous and Harvard was just a crapshoot. And um, I was telling somebody recently that I never told my parents that I'd gotten into Harvard. And I realized, of course, that my father would have killed himself to make sure that that would have happened. <laughs> you know? 
(laughs) So I kind of spared them that, but, you know, know, you're, you're 21, you think you know everything. Um, But I don't, I don't regret staying at Cornell for a second. It was a great education. Um, It was a great school, great university to be part of. And uh, uh, it, I hope I've done as well for the university as it did for me. Yeah. Speaking of the university at Cornell, was there a class or a professor there that had an influence on you and your career path? Um, a lot of, a lot of it all, uh, it, 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 they all came about in, in, and they all touched down in different ways. Let me put uh-huh. In terms of my undergraduate major, I was, um, I was interested in, 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 uh, in how psychology would influence, um, issues of psychology influenced, um, uh, the built environment and, and the responsibility of the designer. And there was, uh, I forget which instructor, um, had, you know, had us begin to explore lateral thinking and uh, the work of Edward de Bono. And I was, you know, you're an undergraduate, so you start reading a lot of Paulo Freire and, you know, a lot of philosophical things because that's what you do. So there, there was this, this sort of idea that, you know, I was, I was coming from a Caribbean country that was emerging from colonialism and so examining um, how it would move define itself and move forward. Um, this was the seventies was a very sort of um, important creative time in the Caribbean and in Jamaica. I mean, this is when Bob Marley sort of emerged as a, as an international star and it wasn't just Bob, but you know, all of these things were happening. Michael Manley um, for better, or for worse, I'm not going to take a stand. <laughs> okay. And Michael Manley, but you know, um, was, was saying that we had to define ourselves. You know, we, you know, we were an independent country, and and so to go to university and 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 read um, uh, Latin American, in particular, philosophers around around um, again emerging. You know, the um, the ethos of the self and and the responsibility of the person and and um, and sort of like being in the world, these questions of being in the world were, you know, that was sort of like a subtext to, to things I was looking at at Cornell. And then you'd get a, you'd get a, um, uh, a professor who would say, okay, this is our curriculum. This is what we're going to read. And, and, you know, coming from a place like Jamaica where everything is so highly structured, <laughs> you, know, you know, you survive by following, by coloring within the lines, right? And then, <laughs> And then, and then you, you you come to the university here, and somebody is 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 telling you to look at things in different ways, and and sort of training yourself to be able to do that was really was really very gratifying. But I remember, you know, having you know gone through gone through uh, the the undergraduate curriculum at in DEA, and and ending up um, the course that was taught by Gary Coates, who was an architect, and. And Gary, you know, I remember sitting in the class and he said, listen, you can't predict how people are going to respond mm-hmm. to, to anything. <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so so what, what were the last three years about? <laughs> <laughs> you know? 
it was a, a, a fascinating sort of understanding of, uh, or sort of door opening about um, what what we could what what could be considered in terms of design. And then, you know, moving on to graduate school, um, we had a very small faculty at the time. We had a very small program, and uh, each faculty member at the time had a sort of person personality or a quirk that you could sort of think, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, our history professor at the time, um, uh, Lenny Mirren, uh, it was extraordinary deep dives into the history of landscape architecture. Uh, we, I was talking to a group from Cornell last night and, and somebody said that they didn't feel that their history was represented. And, and I understand that there was, there was no attention paid to, um, any sort of uh, non-European, non-Asian uh, sort of uh, architectural expression or land use sort of patterning that way. But I felt that you could take, take the language that you were being in, in its most abstract form that you were being um, sort of trained in and look for the patterns that you needed to see elsewhere. Um, you know, since in the, in the 40 plus years since I was in school there, um, you know, there's been a tremendous level of scholarship that's just opened up a real world of, of, of available information. And it, it means that you have to just have the time to, to sit and sort of uh, delve, you know, yeah. but, it, but there's, there's opportunity there and it's exciting. Uh, but, you know, Lenny, Lenny with his history, Tom Johnson, who, who was very sort of cool, laid back guy uh he he was the one who probably tried to impart the greatest sense of party and organization you know that, that this is what you kind of look for in design peter trowbridge who just retired from the program like maybe a year or two ago might be three you know past 18 months have just been lost <laughs> um <laughs> um peter peter was peter um, peter really explained the balance that you had to have between a strong idea and, and strong um, technical capabilities. It was, and, and Marvin Edelman, who was also an extraordinary educator, was very much about this. This has to be real. It has to be buildable. It has to be, you know, you have, you have, um, uh, you, you, you could talk all you want, about the idea, but you know, it's, it's got it, it's got to get off the paper and onto, in, and into the ground. So, uh, and and there was those were the big four that I can remember, and then and then Arthur Lieberman, who was a faculty member more in, involved in the environmental questions. He was back and forth from Israel, but I took a class with him, and he was a, a, a he he was the type of guy that you went and sat in seminar and talked with, and mm-hmm. and he was. He was very broad in in his um, interests, so you could go to him um, about things that weren't necessarily design studio related, but it had to do with land use. It had to do with cultural, and I think maybe Art was the first person that I could have a conversation about cultural interpretation of land use and and have it taken seriously as a conversation. Yeah. So that was that was Cornell. 
Wow. What a, what an awesome experience. Now, before you went on to found your own landscape architecture practice, you had a few different experiences working for landscape architect and for affordable housing developing company. Mm -hmm. What did you learn while working for the landscape architect and how did that lead to you working for an actual housing developer at some point? It was kind of funny because I think, I think, your first job is when you realize that working is not like school, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that there's, um, uh, so, and that was very much the case. Uh, The first person I worked for, and I I, I, I give this example all the time, but I'm not sure that people think it's important. Uh, I left school during a recession. Mm -hmm. And uh, let me be really candid. I also left without finishing my thesis. I was writing the same five sentences over and over and over again and, um, and couldn't, couldn't figure out a way of moving forward with the topic. Uh, I, you know, 40 years later, I kind of understand where, where things kind of went sideways, <laughs> but at the time it was, it was a little abstract to me, but you know, I, I had to get a job and I came out and I, um, I remember working for coming into interview with a with a, a woman who had a small firm and her name was Lois Schur and she had a deadline and she said oh well you know your work looks nice and she said you know do you mind helping out and I said sure and I worked with I worked there until 11 o'clock that night helping them get get oh their work done yeah and um she hired me right away I'd hope so. <laughs> After that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And she's been, she's been a tremendous influence in my life. She's been a friend all this time. Um, on occasion, a surrogate mom. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, but I always like to say that Lois set the standard. Uh, when you're an employer, you have to, you're giving people a chance a lot of mm-hmm. times. And, and, and she set that example that she gave me a chance to get started and she was doing high-end residential and actually building a lot off of schematics, which, which kind of was surprising to me. Uh, she also had work with New York city department of parks and recreation. And so I did the playgrounds. Um, I sort of, liked to draw them. I kind of liked figuring them out. And uh, I did, I, and it sort of gave me confidence in, in getting a grasp around construction documentation. Uh, I worked with her until she, she started to, um, she had an, she always had a lifelong interest in beads. Um, I want to make sure everybody understands the B-E-A-D-S because a lot of people hear bees, but it's beads. And she, she um, she focused on that, and she's written a, a number of best-selling bead books. Wow! Okay. <laughs> so she 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 changed the focus of her life and and uh, towards that, and and the practice closed. And um, I worked for a lot of small firms, largely as a freelancer for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, my mother grew more concerned, and at one point, she said, "You know, you need to go and get a job at McDonald's." <laughs> this is nothing 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 like your mother you know telling you you know you know mom now that um and and, you know mcdonald's 
they, I, if I had done that, I would be, I would have been doing better financially than I was at the time. But uh, I then uh, went to work at a in a design build department in a nursery, and that was very much a sales job. And I had no experience in sales. I didn't know how. Um, I didn't know how to sell. I didn't know what was involved in selling. I didn't really have, I, re, I didn't understand it. And I have to say at that time, I didn't respect it. And the, I, I've since learned to, but at that time I didn't. And so that job didn't last that long. But in the six months I was there, because it was design build, I, I learned to run a construction crew uh, and I learned to handle plant materials. That sort of made things, um, things were no longer abstract once I did that. I came back to work. I worked again for Lois for a short period of time. And, and I worked for uh, another good friend, Mary Myers. And I worked for um, uh, Deborah Nevins for, for a period of time. I sort of applying what I'd learned in that, that short construction stint. And then I was back freelancing again. My mother was getting concerned again. And <laughs> a, friend, a friend called up and she said, listen, I, I know this, uh, I know this uh, head of a small uh, development company. They, they do affordable housing and, and they're looking for a project manager. And so I, I, I went to work with them for two years. And prior to that, in the course of the freelancing, I'd taken a class called the workshop in business opportunities. And anybody who knows me, I mean, like anybody, like the bus driver, anybody who knows me knows that, <laughs> you know, I advocate heavily that people should take the workshop in business opportunities. And in fact, it's something that I require my staff to do. And it's really, it's, it's really a six, it, it's remains a 16 week course in um, how to start and profitably run a business. You do, you do marketing, you do sales, um, you do costing, you do you know, pricing, you do cash flow, you do all of these things. And when I went to work for that developer, I brought Weibo in with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard through the grapevine that I was the only one who was profitably running projects in the company. But they had, they had larger issues. So by that time, I was also... Uh, I had accumulated enough experience through the freelancing, through stints in teaching, through all these other things to qualify in New York State to take the license. And so I I became licensed during that time. And when that company um, decided to reorganize, went bankrupt, um, I then started the firm. So you've been running your own landscape architecture firm for over 25 years now. Why did you start the firm when you had the chance? And what lessons have you learned during that time about running a successful business? Uh, well, I thought, it, you know, as I, as I mentioned, the, the, the construction company I worked with had, had um, folded and reorganized. And I thought this was during that, that time when I was, uh, I was learning affordable housing. I was, I was, uh, I was in the deep end of the pool and I had to, I had to learn um, financing, uh, real estate development, how to put together a pro forma, how to analyze 
um, again, the cash flow in a project, how to, how to manage costs. That sort of gave me the real foundation to know that, okay, I, I really had a better understanding about what was going on. I know a lot of people open, open their doors and they're focused on the design and they're not focused on the other parts of the business. And, and, if, they, and, and if they don't have this sort of understanding and they, they sort of succeed, I'm very convinced that they succeeded because they were, they were lucky. And what I mean by lucky is that they, they had such a, mar- a profit margin that they could survive all kinds of mistakes. Uh, me, what I saw during the affordable housing development process was that there were no, there were very few decisions that were being made about what we now call quality of life. Like, uh, there, were, there, was no, there was no consideration to open space. There was no consideration to front or rear yard development, streetscapes, um, uh, connection, urban design. None of, none of that <laughs> went into the thinking. And, and at least at that time, and because of my training, I could see that it was absent. So I felt as though I, had, I was in a position to, to influence the dialogue around this. Um, I don't know why I particularly thought that, but that's what I did. I started our, the very first project that I that I um, had was uh, was a, a small contract, a very small contract to write uh, a scope of work um, to to I guess develop and support uh, a series of community gardens in Northwest Harlem identify sites and see what they could do. I just said, this is ridiculous. Um, there needs to be a bigger understanding of, of, of open space in all of its forms within, within densely occupied communities that suffer high rates of asthma, et cetera, et cetera, so that people could better advocate at the city level for um, the quality of their of their urban environment. Um, when I think now, that was sort of a very sort of naive, I mean, you could only be naive, you could only be somebody whose mother is saying you need to work at McDonald's to start your firm with that, without, you know, without <laughs> really thinking, you know, that this was the express statement in the RFP. But it, it became sort of a clarion call. Uh, the project was picked up by, by um, the City College Architectural Center, and it became... Um, a day-long symposium at, at Harvard, GSD, um, environment, about environmental justice. And I, I was reminded about its importance the other day in a, in a discussion. I didn't start out with that ambition. I just wanted to make sure that, quite frankly, that there was an opportunity to do good work. And, and so sometimes you have to advocate for that in order to make sure it happens. And that's how I started. And then without a, even though I'd done Weibo, without a, a real marketing plan or anything, I'd started doing high-end residential. That in, th- Things were where people who knew me but were too busy to take on certain projects. I had a, you know, Paul Elizabeth. And, um, I did that. And then, and then uh, two things happened. 
somebody somebody said, are you registered with the city as a, as a minority or woman-owned business? And I said, no. And they said, oh, no, I'll do that for you. And and, the, you know, you, you know, it's like one of the, in the movies, you're standing there and somebody sort of kind of whisks you along and suddenly you're <laughs> in this process. So that's how I got certified. And that's what started, um, I would say, my journey in, in public sector work. And uh, we started working on um, psychiatric facilities, uh, making them, uh, among other things, more secure, more uh, the interface with the community to be a little gentler, to make sure that there was sufficient open space of a certain quality that uh, could enhance a therapeutic environment. That's where we started. And then it's been kind of a, um, an unplanned climb since then. Yeah. But what then happened was that we got we stumbled into, and I want to put that that way, um, into doing cultural resource work. Mm-hmm. And and then things got interesting. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask you if you can take a minute to talk about what it means to have a mission-driven and social justice practice. What does that mean to you and your firm and what you do? It's, um, we, (laughs) it is not difficult to have a mission driven firm if you work in the public sector, if you do civic work, and if you, um, understand the importance of the work to, to the civic realm. So sometimes the work isn't glamorous. We've, we've done our share of restoring electrical conduit trenches, trust me. Um, <laughs> but this, this is all uh, important work. I mean, this is how this, the city and the state and the region country runs. So in, in that sense, it's, it's, not, it's not something unusual. Where things uh, became definitive for us in this area is that, uh, and, you know, it's a podcast, so I'm not sure that people understand that. <laughs> I'm a woman of African descent. And so companies would, usually larger projects are, are bundled under, under a prime contract and, and an architecture firm or an engineering firm is leading it. And, and in several instances, architecture firms came to me to ask me to participate on these projects for the sole reason that, that, that I head a firm, I'm, I'm the head of a firm and I happen to be a woman of that of African descent. Mm-hmm. And so those projects were in African-American communities. And so making sure that those communities could make sure that their stories were, were properly told and making sure that their interests were represented, we took that responsibility very seriously. Um, not because we, you know, sort of know the, the secret handshake, but yeah. because we did what we're supposed to do, which is, which is listen really carefully. And, you know, I give this as an anecdote because we've, we've, we've done projects that 
have national significance. We're, we're known for the work at the Weeksville Heritage Center and Weeksville remains probably my best love project. Um, it's not my only child, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's always been special to me and the firm. But even when we worked at Harlem Stage and the idea of the history of that structure and how it changed over time and how, um, how the gatehouses were important in the city because they, the, the, I guess the Department of Public Works at the time would open them to the public so that the public could see the, the miracle of engineering. You know, you could visit a gatehouse on a Sunday and see water flowing through the chambers. And, um, and how now it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's dance performance space, how that narrative gets told, you know, through the landscape and just through its sort of treating it with a certain respect is, has been a large part of what we do. And the, the fact that these, these facilities, these amenities are located in uh, communities that don't often get a lot of love has, has also been really important. So you advocate for a proper budget and you want to make sure that things are finished with, you know, so that they're resilient, things like that. So it's, it's, not, it's not as exotic as it sounds. But we, um, I remember once we were working on a project in, um, in the Lower East Side, which is New York, New York City's Chinatown. And um, one of the community sponsors came and they said, would you help us with, with another project? And I, I declined because I, I didn't feel that I had a, I had a sufficient grasp on, on the cultural issues. Mm-hmm. But I realized, you know, 15 or 20 years later, that there had to have been something that I was saying in the meetings that made them feel that they could come and ask me to to be part of this other initiative that they have. And subsequently, you know, we've, we've worked with, we worked with um, the Hebrew Free Burial Association on the initial aspects of restoring the Silver Lake Cemetery. And uh, this had been, this cemetery had been formed specifically to give um, uh, religious burial to members of the Eastern European immigrant community who had become estranged from that community and, 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 and were not afforded the, the ordinary services within a land. They couldn't afford to, they were, they were the ostracized or they were, um, couldn't afford to be members of Landsmannschaften, which was like this, these predated all of the social support, the social net um, safety net things yeah. that we have in place today. That story was fascinating to me, but it was my administrative assistant at the time who delved down and understood what the actual issue was in this alienation. And, and we were able to point out to the client how unique that was. And that uniqueness was a thing that under, underpinned the application to the National Register of Historic Places for that. So it's, it's sort of like this collective effort um, it is, so it, it goes to having a perspective and I think an interest in the things that drive a culture or a community or in, 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 their, in their understanding of the world, their, their worldview to understand it, to be able to sort of latch on to 
the physical aspects of those and how those things are represented or preserved and making sure that your staff also understands this so that even, even your, you know, the person who answers the phone could say, wait, wait a minute, you know, this is, this is the interesting thing here and have everybody else say, you're right. Now, you've mentioned uh, previously working on public works projects and for public working for public clients. Mm-hmm. In your experience, what's it like to work for a public client and how has that been different from your experience working for private clients? For those of your listeners who don't know anything about <laughs> the public sector, I need to explain that the working the government government agencies, they don't pay retainers. There is no upfront money. And you can go for very, very long periods of time, very long periods of time before you um, receive compensation. So that, that requires a, 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 a very specific kind of business strategy. And I think, I think an existential decision <laughs> that you're going to be in this, in this, in this area of work. Uh, the, the projects are, are for the public good. You know, um, school play, playgrounds, if you're doing that, uh, parks, if you're doing that, um, museums, if you're doing that, historic sites, if you're doing that, roadways, if you're doing that. Um, you know, um, uh, landscape architects are very, very involved in issues of resilience, um, coastal, upland, stormwater runoff management. Um, these are all huge drivers in the industry right now. And um, all of that has to do with an understanding of the public good. Now, the question, who is the public? <laughs> how broad is the public? How narrow is the public? And, and how is the public um, segmented if it is? Those, those, are lot, those are also questions. But the, the, the issue with public work is that you are, you would, you were doing things for, for the public good. Um, so you get to collaborate on general, generally the, the work that involves landscape architecture in the public sector, the projects tend to be bigger. The fees, the construction budgets can, can be in the, in the millions of dollars, which a lot of people don't necessarily realize that landscape architects work there. Um, they, so the fees, you know, you have this terrible cash flow, but the fees can be better. Okay. Uh, you have to, um, a lot of times the, 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 the need to be absolutely current in technology and to be able to flexibly adapt to new technology is very much, very much a factor of, of doing business. Um, uh, I think if you're doing private sector work, client has no interest whatsoever in, in how you're producing the, the technical information, the drawings and specs, but the government, um, sometimes they tell you the software that you have to use. They tell you the format in which documents have to be delivered. They, um, they set all of these, these standards and regulations as part of um, doing business with them. Uh, gen- because the projects are larger and because you generally have but not always an architect or an engineer running the project. Whoever's running the project is also setting the technological demands. And so um, we're, we are amongst the few landscape architects who do work in Revit. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's painful. Uh, there are other, there are other, there's other BIM software that's a lot more suited to landscape architects, but um, our need to be able to quickly communicate and collaborate means that we have to go into, into that area of software. And you have, you have to make sure that, that, um, that your entire sort of financial structure can support all of this. In private sector, it's, it's different. It's, uh, the relationships can be a lot more intimate. You know, you're, you're, you're dealing with people's homes. You're dealing with people's taste. You're dealing with um, things that you're really sort of drawing and feeding off of the client to do. Um, but the, the essentials are still there. How the client is looking at the world, how the, you know, what the client aspires um, in hiring you or your firm. That doesn't change whether or not it's an individual or a small family or a large family or a community. You have to, you have to be able to glean that information to, to meet those needs. Well, Elizabeth, I want to thank you for talking about all these different experiences and this passion for what you do and, and the importance of what you do. It's really inspiring. And we're going to just take a short break. And after we'll explore more about your experience with the Mac and other Apple products right after this. Architects, how do you manage your firm? Are you using dated and clunky software? Are you frustrated using different spreadsheets and never really getting a clear view of the status of your projects? Then let me tell you about Monograph because they can help. Monograph is online software that is designed by architects for architects. It allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets. It can not only track all of this, but it can do it all in real time. Monograph has an awesome tool called Money Gantt. With it, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget on a project. Monograph also comes with a tool called Resource, which allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget. Using this powerful tool, you can easily adjust your projects on a week-to-week basis. Can your dated and clunky software do that? Monograph makes this easy. Check out all the ways Monograph can help your firm be more productive at monograph.com and be proactive with Monograph. As business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. For many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. It's not a pleasant experience, and clearly I wasn't dealing with an IT provider like ArcIT. ArcIT is a different kind of company. They specialize in serving Mac and PC-based architecture and design firms. This means they understand your Mac-related challenges of keeping your personal and your business data separate and have experience providing solutions when certain software providers stop supporting macOS. Combine this with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, solid disaster recovery and backup solutions, and enterprise-grade security management. And yet, all of the above are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business. 
All of this sounds expensive, right? Not with Arc IT. Because Arc IT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par, or in some cases, even lower than other IT providers. Arc IT is transparent and publishes its pricing on its website. Your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to Boris, Arc IT's founder and CEO, for a free consultation. Go to getarcit.com and click work with us. Welcome back, everyone. Elizabeth, you've shared an incredible journey of your professional career. Now let's discuss how you got started using a Mac and other Apple products. How were you first exposed to the Mac and what was the first Mac that you used? The first Mac that I used was the first one that I bought. Um, I had to look up what actually it was. It was a Macintosh Plus. It was one of the little nine-inch screens. It was still black and white. It whirred when you turned it on. And uh, I think it had was one megabyte of memory I was reading recently. So it's, it, I still have it in a closet because I, I keep most things for some reason. Um, but that was what I started with. And, and that really was entirely personal use. Uh, as uh, as I started the business, I, I started the business uh, uh, with a typewriter and and drafting by <laughs> hand. So it wasn't we weren't even using using the computer in that way. Yeah, uh, I I probably started to use the Mac in the office in earnest when I actually also had to bring PCs in at first because mm-hmm. the Autodesk had stopped writing uh, uh, AutoCAD for the Mac by that time. And my clients, I was, I was already moving into, into public sector work and my clients were not using Minicad, which is now Vectorworks or, or any of the other sort of um, Mac friendly software. So we had to, we, we had to have, a, we had to have PCs in the office and systems um, that would support those networks. And then, but I always had a Mac. So like the office, the office would have their, you know, the, everybody else would have, have their desktops and I would have my laptop or my desktop. And then as we, we, we had a couple of large projects sort of halfway in where um, we could bring in graphic designers and, and il- illustrators. And so they would work on Macs we, we, we would sort of, you know, bring in, and I, w- I always invested until recently in some of the lower end Macs. So I always had like an iMac or I always had, um, one time we had an eMac, right? <laughs> you know, things like this. Um, so that there was this sort of administrative half of the office and, and then the, the, CAD, the CAD aspect of the office. And then when... Um, when Apple uh, started to use the Intel chips, and at the same time Autodesk returned to writing Mac software, then then I stopped using PCs. But you know, over over time, I was uh, I was never really enthralled with their performance. We we had to invest in 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 weekly network maintenance. We were set up on a server in such a way and and we had a server crash and and 
you know, that was a major setback in terms of data recovery, all, all of the things that we were supposed to be doing that, that placed a certain burden on me that I just knew using Max that we didn't have to do. Yeah. So uh, I, you know, and, 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 and this coincided with the staffing going up and down. So I could, I could bring Max in, back into the office slowly. Where we really sort of changed things was uh, uh, when uh, Apple introduced the iMac Pro. Okay. Because it, I, I knew that we would have enough firepower, right, to get what we had to get done. But I could have the sort of efficiency of the single unit and, and the, the all-in-one and the... Um, reduce the number of cables from 50 to one. (laughs) 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 What is all this clutter? So, so um, we have, uh, we have a staff of, of uh, eight Mm -hmm. and all, all of the computers in the office are, are Mac. Uh, We have uh, two administrative stations, my laptop, uh, four uh, iMac pros. Mm-hmm. Uh, two 27 inch, um, but these are I5s and not I7s. And okay. so they're fine for some stuff, but not for others. Where we're, we're sort of, we sort of um, did a, a workaround, and I think this is when I, I attracted your attention, is that um, we had to bring Revit into the office. Yeah. And there, and we had to be able to collaborate in a certain way. And I knew with the Intel Macs that we could do boot camp and we could go back and forth. Um, but I wasn't fully committed to that as a, as a system. And uh, in scouring the internet, we, we found that we could do an external drive, that Windows 10 can be operated off of an external drive. And so we have, <laughs> we, we have uh, four external drives uh, formatted with Windows 10, and each has um, a subscription copy of, of Revit on it. So it, it actually kind of makes it hot swappable. You know, it's sort of interesting in that way. And uh, for the level of Revit modeling that we have to do, it's, it's been okay. Uh, people who really use Revit, they complain about the speed yeah. and uh, somebody saying, somebody said, Liz, you might have to bite the bullet and, and partition a drive and then, and then so that we can go back and forth. I haven't committed to that yet because again, (laughs) I have to do things in inches and increments. Right. Um, But it may be that, uh, we might have to bring into um, uh, Windows laptops. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure yet. I'm not. I'm not fully convinced. But it just seems that we would just have a little bit more speed and utility to this. One of the challenges I have is that um, you organize a Mac office differently than a PC office, and I, for me, the the simplicity the sort of elegant simplicity of the Mac system is really important. Uh, I don't like to spend a lot of time on technology. I don't like to spend a lot of time trying to figure things out. Um, 
And to be honest with you, as I get older, I want to do this even less and less. So the, the ability for um, the sort of Mac ecosystem to have um, all the devices talking to each other and, and instant messaging going on a regular basis and all these other, these other things that I didn't set out to exploit, but they're there, you know, right. <laughs> part of the package that, that has really um, uh, meant that we can have a relatively simple uh, uh, digital operation in the office. The, most of the staff that goes between the two, they actually like using the Mac better. They just, they just find it simpler. And uh, that, makes, that makes life a lot easier for me. Um, a number of people also have Macs personally. So, you, so, you know, they, they just, they just kind of understand how to, how to navigate it. Whereas the, the PC, the PC addicts, <laughs> what do I do next? What do I do next? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And to be honest with you, um, when I have to go in, into the Windows 10 format to figure out everything, <laughs> okay, can somebody come over here? And <laughs> because it, it's not even, um, it doesn't even look the way it did when, when I was, um, when we were using uh, uh, PCs 15 years ago. So there's a lot, a lot that has changed. I'm holding my breath because... Uh, I know that you know Mac is moving away from the Intel chip towards the silicon chip, and uh, I don't think for what we've been able to do that parallels has been the best solution for us and so part of part of me is thinking well how how much of a footprint is Revit actually going to have in the office, and what do I have to expect to do that? Um, my greatest hope is that I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why Autodesk is not really, or Apple are not are not sort of recognizing um, the AEC industry because construction construction is one of the major drivers of the economy, right? So it's, it's not as though there isn't a market there. Um, but right now, with the workaround, we we have a PC environment when we need to, but almost everything else is being done in the Mac. So other than Revit, you, you mentioned AutoCAD, are you use, still using AutoCAD for the Mac then? Yeah, I prefer, I prefer that, it, that the work is done um, in the Mac environment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and whenever we've had to go back and forth and sort of test it, we've had, we've had costly errors. Um, so it, it just means that I can control the workflow a bit more intuitively. You know, it's just like, you know, it, it, things sort of fall into place using a Mac system in a way that you have to sort of be more disciplined in structuring it in, in a PC system. What other applications or services do you use to manage your practice, like, say, for time tracking or accounting project management? Okay. Um, we're a QuickBooks desktop Firm. So that's one of the other softwares that I have to boot into the Windows environment to do. Uh, we are increasingly using iPads to mm. do uh, Bluebeam 
uh, communication and and Morfolio Trace to just be able to digitize sketches, sketching and communication on that level really fast. Uh-huh. Um, so that that works very well. Um, they, they have the remote working for the pandemic sort of pushed this forward in the office. And then we brought certain aspects of those habits back when we regrouped. And so this sort of graphic communication on that level is important. We use the Adobe creative cloud software most of our, most of our software first of all now is uh, is is cloud subscription based so we use rhino we use sketchup we use adobe creative cloud revit is revit has been is generally our projects we prefer that our projects are in um, like bim 360 or whatever the new collaboration is uh, um, but we can access um, we can we can access uh, the, the the sort of shared work environment. I don't do it, so I, I'm, I'm, you're hearing me sort of be vague here. But um, the project managers involved in in some of those projects they're they're in they're using their Macs, but they're they're accessing and downloading the information that they need in order to do it on a, in a um, on the on the, the Mac desktop. We're not a GIS office, so we don't we don't necessarily require GIS software. Um, my understanding is that there's there's more utility again in the PC, but since we don't do, it. so the workaround for us works pretty well. We use maybe five or six, and and of course uh, Microsoft Office Suite. Do you have some sort of shared calendar that you guys all everyone on the team uses, and what is that? Uh, we we use uh, the calendar that comes on the Mac. We, okay. Everybody has an iCloud. Everybody has an iCloud account here, and so once they do, they just share their calendars, and uh, we can see everybody can see where everybody else is. Okay, that makes sense. So, what's your favorite thing about using a Mac and other Apple devices? For me, there's just a simplicity of use. It's just a real sort of direct. Simplicity. You know, people talk about the elegance of the Mac design, and it that's a little um, lost on me. I think it's a better looking product than than, <laughs> than the competition, <laughs> but but I'm not gazing at it the way I, I would look at a car. <laughs> you know, that's not on. That's not on the radar for me. Um, I like its efficiency. I really think that. Uh, that the products pack a lot of power into relatively small footprints. So even when we've used the lower grade Macs, we've been able to get an extraordinary amount done um, for an extended period of time. I mean, all of my Macs are, they last seven, eight, nine years. And, um, and I haven't had the same success with the PCs that we've had. Yeah. The, uh, I think for me, it's it's just the simplicity, the the way the information is organized, the way the way it can be organized relatively intuitively, and and our workflows make sense to anybody who sort of that that's very that's very important because small small firms don't necessarily. One of the differences between a small and a mid-size and definitely a large firm is that small firms don't necessarily have that middle. 
mm-hmm. in terms of management, in terms of, and sometimes it's, it's, it's people that people breathing thin air and then a lot of entry level. <laughs> and so you need to have a, a sort of workflow and process management that people can get and, and get pretty simply. One of the reasons that I, that I've insisted on, on using a Mac office is besides the fact that the IT demands are, are really sort of basic. The, the junior staff can't get into a lot of trouble. I, I used to say that, you know, you know, there's a, and my staff always said, you use this phrase too much, but um, there's a point where the, the tail is the tail, the tail wags the dog until the dog starts to wag the tail. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of time spent with the tail wagging the dog. And, and it's sort of like, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to, this can't be done because I don't know how to use the software to do it. It's like, listen, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, you could do this with a pencil and paper. So, you know, we're going to figure out. (laughs) (laughs) So they, you know, um, so it's accessible to the older staff like me, who is like, whoa, you know, and the the kids who, they, they, they don't get caught up in game, what I call gaming. They're not, they're not sort of in the, digital space to such a degree that we can't get things done. And so in terms of onboarding, training, teaching, getting people to master the tools, the computers just seem to work a lot better in a Mac environment to do that. And it's been important for us. What advice would you give the listeners if they're considering using a Mac to practice landscape architecture? If you are uh doing work in AutoCAD in particular AutoCAD LT, it's a no-brainer. It's um it's it's a very speedy, efficient, um, comfortable way. Um desktop environment. The the screen is comfortable, the ergonomics really work very well. And um and Working with the server systems, the, the archiving and the management and the connectivity in that sense is it, it's, it's very efficient and it's not expensive. So, you know, those things all work in your favor. Um, there's nothing that, uh, except maybe certain aspects of, of software that's not written for the Mac platform. Um, there's nothing that you can't that you would do in a, on a PC platform that you can't do in a in a in a Mac environment. Yeah, and so and and to do it um, simply. Well, Elizabeth, I appreciate you sharing all of your Apple and Mac experience. But before we wrap this portion up, I want you to share with the audience one app or utility or service that you find most useful. I I I love that between the iPad and the desktop I can find a $10 application in the in the App Store that allows us to mess around in a way that's sort of quick and can be translated across the entire team and internally very easily. I really um so Morfolio Trace for instance is is a really great find. I use it in a very basic kind of sloppy way, but there are people <laughs> like Liz, we can draw straight lines, you know. <laughs> 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 and, 
I'm like, I'm like, great, you do that. I'm going to stay over here. Um, so there, and 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 so the same thing with the blue beans. Same thing, you know, for a firm that's sort of running on fumes because because of the way we do business, that utility makes it very very easy and comfortable for us. Yeah. Um, I think we found more flexibility, even though it's more expensive, more flexibility in subscribing to software. We can, we can engage and disengage licenses much more easily. And, and the interface is smooth, it's quick. And again, it's uh, very flexible. Uh, I don't have a favorite. I don't, I, I, I don't have a favorite. Uh, uh, I, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I prefer social. I, get, I prefer social media on my phone. I have a, I have an iPhone eight, and we're thinking. Um, I'm thinking about upgrading to an iPhone thirteen Pro because of the lidar. Yeah, we're doing yeah. we're doing some projects that will allow us to document um, additionally document existing conditions and things like that, that I think the LIDAR would allow us to do very quickly. And because we are working um, more, more and more in a 3D sort of just general interface, it will allow us to, 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 to bring that process on a lot faster. Yeah. The, the phone, phone was a revelation. Um, uh, and, and that's, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, so, yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. Well, next up is our 10 questions. And the first question is, what is your favorite word? Mom. <laughs> What's your least favorite word? Can't. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I love wide open spaces. I absolutely feel connected to so many things in them. What turns you off? Bigotry. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of the city at six o'clock in the morning. You know, wherever it is that you are, when, when the city is waking up at six o'clock, it's really great. What sound or noise do you hate? Metal scraping against concrete (laughs) (laughs) remains disturbing. I I thought you might say the beeping of a car backing up as we heard a couple of times. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) What's your favorite curse word? Oh, the F word. The F word. I've been asked to stop using the F word. (laughs) what profession other than your own would you like to attempt i would have liked to have been a vegetable farmer yeah or a marine biologist or an archaeologist (laughs) (laughs) what profession would you not like to do i have enormous respect for people who care for the infirm. And it's not something I could do. Uh, you know, um, enormous respect for people, care, caregivers who 
see people at their worst and show up every day. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? There you are. (laughs) Well, that's great. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. Please let the listeners know where they can find you online and the best way to contact you. Uh, The firm's website is eklastudio.com. We have a a contact button there and we monitor our info account and we will love to get back in touch with anybody who is inquiring about landscape architecture as a profession or coursework. (laughs) (laughs) That would be good. Yes. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Elizabeth. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank Monograph and Arc IT for their support. You can also support the show by telling a friend and show them how to follow it in their favorite podcast player. If you have comments on the show, you can find me on Twitter at N-P-A-N-N or at Apple for Arc. That's Apple F-O-R-A-R-C-H. You can also comment on the Apple for Architects Facebook page and join the Apple for Architects Facebook group. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com.